A new investigation from the New York Times has offered us a deeply disturbing picture of children, mostly teens, working hazardous jobs all across the United States. Reporter Hannah Dreyer outlined how young migrants, many of whom entered the country unaccompanied, are working long, dangerous hours in places like food packing facilities, construction sites, and poultry processing plants. Some of the facilities now under investigation are in West Michigan. Child labor laws, in theory, protect kids from the kind of work that's led to so many injuries, deaths, and misery in the first 150 years or so of this country's industrial history. But clearly, we have yet to leave child labor in the past. Unfortunately, the various stories in the article are, are very common ones, just the reality of, of kids across the country that have gone through um, some of the governmental systems, but once they're out of them, really have no supports, and so there are just crushing needs that they face. Today, how child labor laws are violated right under our noses in Michigan. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Children are traveling often from Guatemala, but they can come from anywhere in the world, but mostly they come from Central America. That's Anna Raquel Devereaux. She's a managing attorney with the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center. The center has represented some of the young people in the Times story. And why are these kids coming to the U.S.? Anna says it's for a variety of reasons. Whether it's being threatened by gangs, whether themselves or their family members, or lack of jobs, as the article referenced, some situations where families just could not even make ends meet to feed themselves, or sometimes something's happened, maybe a family member is no longer with them, and there's not a support system like our foster care system kind of to provide in many of those countries. So they're trying to figure out who in the family can provide that support. Anna has worked with several young people in these circumstances, and she's familiar with the journey that many kids have made to get to the border and the process that faces them once they arrive. And so they make the journey to the U.S. That journey often involves contracting with a guide, or coyote is the colloquial term for it, so someone you're that the families are paying a lot of money to to get them here to the U.S. because our system does not permit the children to come many other ways. And so they have to make a really dangerous journey through Central America, up through Mexico to the border. And even when there are a lot of options for them to go through processes, once they're here in the States, there's not options for them to say, take a flight, which would be cheaper and safer, but that doesn't exist for them. So they have these big debts that they incur. And sometimes the debt is directly with that um, guide, but usually it's some sort of local lender um, or maybe the sponsor, like we saw a few examples in the article. And they come to the U.S. and they either present themselves at the border or they're trying to come in and are caught at the border. And in that occasion, because they're children without a parent or guardian at the time, they are placed into the Office of Refugee Resettlement Custody. And the goal of that agency is supposed to be to, to tend to the welfare of these children and ideally find them sponsors to be released to. So the term sponsor is um, their term, the Office of Refugee Resettlement's term. It can encompass family members and encompass non-family members. And so they get different categorizations. The closer the relation, the higher priority they are and the less process they go through. But they process the sponsors and are meant to try to uh, ascertain how safe that situation will be for the child and whether the sponsor will be taking the child to school, taking the child to their follow-ups for their immigration proceedings. How common is it for sponsors to be blood relatives? That is a more common scenario. 
Uh, the majority are parents. That's the highest concentration of sponsorship. The next category is being like aunts, uncles, older siblings. Um, that is a pretty common scenario. Grandparents is the least common, um, just in terms, I think, their age and all the other factors. But mm -hmm. then there is the non-relatives. And so it's in the, the lower percentile of the relationships, but it, it does come up. And so non-family members are supposed to go through additional processes in terms of background checking, just really verifying that relationship to assure that it's not a trafficking relationship or one in which they're going to get exploited in some way. But the article does a great job of pointing out that there are definitely some people who try to exploit that system by sponsoring a lot of people, or there definitely are a lot of occasions where that sponsor isn't looking out for the best interest of the child. But the majority of the sponsors are family members who are definitely just trying to reunite with their child or their relative and provide what they can for them. Yeah. But once the children are released to sponsors, there really are no supports for them at all. Right. Um, so some organizations like ours get some funding to be able to provide legal services, but it's not for the entire population. And that's just for their immigration legal case. Yeah. And so there's not a financial support, at least in Michigan, there's not really much follow up in terms of social services and connections to referrals. So these children have been released to those sponsors who are many times don't have immigration status themselves and are in communities affected by poverty and are trying to pay back that debt that they incurred to get here to be able to help with the original need that existed for their family. And so if they had remained in the, the ORR system, the foster families who care for them get financial supports um, and the children even at some points get daily stipends to support them that doesn't exist when they're released to sponsors. Anna, one of the things that, that I, th I thought the article also did a good job on is pointing out that, you know, there are reasons why kids feel the need to work and that in some cases they're with sponsors who feel like it is appropriate for these teens to hold some kind of job. The thing that was so difficult to suss out is like there are a lot of, say, 16, 17, even some 15-year-olds who hold down jobs but the kinds of industrial work that were described in the article were pretty clearly beyond the pale. And I think what none of us would want for anyone at the age of certainly 14 or 15, maybe even 16 or 17. What is your sense about how many of the kids who do come into this country unaccompanied end up working some kind of job and what kind of work they're most likely to find? Uh I'd say for the children released to sponsors, it's a pretty high percentage that at some point will work just because there are no other supports for them. Most of them come with dual intent, with the intent to work and go to school. I think the the industries that we, we see in the article, you know, factory work, processing, agricultural work do tend to be where they find jobs in part because that is often where their sponsors have been finding jobs. Sometimes we do see also in the like restaurant industry but similar issues of very long hours and things like that that can come up there or safety hazards and in kitchens. But those are tend to be the industries we see them going into work, just given their the family connections that already exist, but also lack of other, they haven't attained the education required maybe for some of the other industries as well. We need to take a short break. When we come back, more on the Michigan facility now under investigation for violating child labor laws. Merck has um, particularly had a case against Hearthside. Uh, it was for an adult, but there were a number of safety standard violations that caused injuries. More with Anna Raquel Devereaux after the break.
Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. We should be clear that there's not just one employer that has benefited from the labor of these young people. But the Times reporter found that teenagers were working in a food processing and packaging facility in Grand Rapids for a company called Hearthside Food Solutions. Anna, was that name known to you? Do you are you aware of a lot of people, young or otherwise, who've worked there? It is. Merck has um, particularly had a case against Hearthside. It was for an adult, but there were a number of safety standard violations that caused injuries. But a similar pattern of using staffing agencies like this, um, like Hearthside was mentioned doing in the article and a number of the other ones, as a way to avoid responsibility. So we definitely see that for Hearthside and for the other industries, they mentioned egg industries in the article, and we've seen it for egg industry, meatpacking, dairy um, here in Michigan for adult workers primarily is where we've happened to have had the cases at this point with our workers' rights team. But even those situations, kind of we see those abuses. And then the fear of losing a job, even a bad job, um, can really keep people from speaking up out of fear of retaliation. Um, and we see that this is really exacerbated for children. Heartside issued a statement saying, in part, our hearts break for the young people documented in the article. And then the statement goes on to claim that the article mischaracterized Heartside, states that the company's requirement is that everybody has to be 18 years old, and states we go to great lengths to vet our workforce. You know, we're kind of lacking some detail here, but what are some ways that companies who do want to verify that they're not employing underage people might do so if they so chose. One of the the ways can be just being directly involved um, in their own hiring processes and, and so they can have those accountability measures and knowing that the you know, while some may come with documentation that doesn't accurately reflect their age, those can be if if you're looking for it, there can be a lot of factors that can make it clear that as they were pointed out in the articles, just seeing baby faces or having a different person show up later after a job was offered. Like you recruit one person mm-hmm. and then it's clear that a different person actually shows up for the job for orientation. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So just kind of if, you know, if someone has an eye on it um, and is closer to the ground, that definitely can see it. So that that using a, a staffing agency and then just trusting that whatever is coming your way, um, you know, if that continues to be the method, it can be an easy way for them to say, well, we, we're trying our best, but they could try, you know, harder with having um, folks in their own agency doing some of the vetting or doing a double checking, even if folks have come from a staffing agency. Yeah. Um, we we know we know because of the reporting and because of what the center's the center's work has involved, that there has been a, a intense pressure in uh, within the federal HHS agency has been able to process people. Sec- Secretary of Health and Human Services Javier Becerra, uh, according to this article, has really been putting a lot of pressure on 
the agency to move young people through the system very quickly. Can you give us an idea of the kind of caseloads that HHS is is having to process and the speed at which they're going? Um, We've definitely have been seeing kids try to get released a lot quicker where we used to have a few weeks um, from our end. One of our responsibilities is to meet with the children, um, give them a new rates presentation um, and assess them for kind of the eligibility for immigration relief. And then we can kind of follow them until they've been released to a sponsor, at least the children who were in Michigan for that initial phase. And we used to always be able to do that. Um, we try to do it within 10 days. But now, particularly the, the closer the relationship, the quicker it's happening, where there's just a, a rush to, by the time kids are here, um, they've only been in the country a few days. We're seeing kids getting released within less than a week, which it usually was a few weeks after that. And so we're seeing a new shift even in the last month or two of a, a pressure to process a lot quicker and get children out to sponsors a lot more quickly, which there are some pros and cons. Definitely, you know, we don't want children to be unnecessarily in government facilities because there's not always a great space or great setup for them to be there long term. But the the flip side being these really quick releases where there may not be proper vetting or the, they're being released without the supports. Anna, I feel like this is so complicated. There was this moment several years ago when the American public was seeing images of kids being held at detention centers at the border, which felt like one extreme. Uh, it's not that every kid in federal custody is in a situation that's that's that serious, but there was such intense pressure to resolve that situation and make sure that kids were not being held in inappropriate federal facilities that... I don't know. I mean, I, I hope I'm not I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but it seems like at least part of the pressure right now has been to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But is there a middle ground between that and moving uh, young, unaccompanied folks through the system at a speed that all but guarantees they, you know, they won't have appropriate supervision if if they choose to be working? Yeah, I think there are sort of two components to a middle ground. One is um, there are facilities that are um, the ones we particularly have in Michigan at this point are foster care settings as opposed to those large industrial settings that are typically emergency intake sites or influx sites. They go by both names, but they're just sort of the kids are packed in as many as they can get and they are trying to provide them services, but it is just a um a rush to get them out because it's really not a setting to be in for a very long time. But there are foster care settings that, while you know, none of them are perfect, definitely is a, a better environment to be in if you have to be in there for a little longer. So in those settings, it's okay if the child has to be there for a few weeks. Um, while the, the vetting goes on, they're receiving full services, educational services, um, even, you know, making sure there's time for leisure and play and all of their needs are being met there. And so that's kind of the first big solution is making sure that children aren't in those emergency settings so that if they have to, if we have to prioritize vetting, which should be prioritized, that it's in a better setting. And the other, which is a much probably longer term fix, is just really having supports for children once they're released. Because a lot of these, like even the children in the article, they're not all in those predatory situations with bad sponsors. Um, They're with people who love them, often family, and it's just a, there's no other way for them to kind of make their lives work without the extra income. And so having supports for those children, um, both for their immigration processes, um, as well as just for the, the services they need would be the biggest really part of that solution. Do you think that there is a reason for these kids to come forward, given that 
you know, they may be concerned about their own status and being able to stay in the country. What's what's in it for a young person who is in an exploitative work situation to say something? I think thankfully, at least in, in the situation that most of these kids, when they have legal representation, they're the work situation shouldn't affect their immigration situation, but we definitely commend the courage of these children that have been willing to step forth and and just I know that a lot of their motivation is to just make it better for others um, and that they need to work. So they want to make sure that at least if they have to work, that it's it's a safer environment for them. After the Times story came out on Monday, West Michigan Representative Hillary Skolton called for the need for an interagency task force to protect children. She says we need to raise penalties for companies that illegally employ children. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes for streaming anytime at michiganradio.org. Today's pod episode was produced by Ronia Kabansag and by our pod editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for our pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. It's good to have you along. See you next time.